Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. I'm joined by another special guest, uh, someone who's no stranger to the Jude 3 Project, Dr. C.J. Rhodes. Welcome, Dr. Rhodes. Pleasure to be with you. Good to have you. You've been on here um, a number of times and uh, you have participated in our Courageous Conversations. So most of the folks that watch uh, will will already know who you are, but for those who don't, just give them a little bit of background about who you are. Sure. Well, I grew up in the town of Hazelhurst, Mississippi, and uh, later went to the University of Mississippi for my bachelor's of arts in philosophy. Then went on to Duke University Divinity School, got my master of divinity there, moved back to Mississippi to Jackson and became the youngest pastor of Jackson's oldest African-American church, Mount Helm Baptist Church in 2010 and uh, since that time also began working at Alcorn State University as basically the chaplain. Uh, 2018 received my doctor of ministry from Wesley Biblical Seminary. Uh, I'm the husband of but one wife, uh, Allison, and we're the uh, blessed parents of twin sons. We call them affectionately Duke and Josie and they are six years old and um, host a radio show and you know as you noted do various things for Jew 3, serve as a part of the leadership, the and campaign, and, and on and on and on. But uh, uh, at the end of the day, as we say in the church world, I'm a, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and live to give him glory. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to have you um, on the podcast with us today. Um, we're going to be talking about the Black Church uh, documentary that was on PBS uh, that was a uh, uh, hosted by Dr. Henry Lewis Gates, and it was a a phenomenal uh, documentary. Um, and there was some a lot to be said about about <laughs> what happened, what was included, what not, what was not included. Whether it was a complete holistic picture of the Black Church, kind of what were your initial thoughts as you as you watched the documentary? Sure. Well, first of all, I was grateful uh, to have the Black Church documentary as a part of our uh, televisual um, database, if you will. Uh, it was it was important to, to have uh, that particular do uh, documentary aired on public access or public uh, uh, networks. You know, so people who don't have cable, for instance, were able to watch it. It was available on YouTube and other spaces. So the, the wide net it was able to cast in terms of viewers uh, was very important. Overall, it told a kind of a beautiful uh, story. There was kind of this wonderful thread from the origins of the black church uh, through today. And so 
Uh, I think in some ways it offered wonderful correctives about uh, the historical significance of the black church, tensions in the black church today. All that notwithstanding, uh, there were considerable gaps in the narrative, uh, certain just basic things that were left out that one would consider an introductory presentation of the black church would have covered. Uh, and then there were, you know, interesting conversations to be had and have been had, uh, not only about what was left out, but the overall kind of philosophical uh, narrative orientation of the film and whether or not it did justice to the diversity and complexity uh, of the black church and, and, and whether or not toward the end of the four hours, almost four hours, uh, you know, did it really do what it apparently was uh, slated to do, which is, which is have a, kind of an appreciation uh, for the black church. It, it almost ended with this notion that the black church was so wonderful in her past prior to the uh, death of King, but you know, afterward we've kind of fallen on hard times. I just think that is historically and experientially inaccurate. Uh, thankfully the book, does a better job in telling that story. However, I don't think as many people will read the book as they did watch the film. And so I would have hoped that the film would have done a better job in those particular areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, and we always, you know, like to say the black church is not a monolith. Um, but oftentimes when we talk about it, we talk about it as if it is a monolith that there right. are a, a, a consistent um, core beliefs that are are throughout the history of the black church. And that's just being intellectually dishonest. Um, when we think about what the black church is, I think it's helpful to start with the definition. How would you define the black church? Yeah. And so I think you're right to know that the black church is not a monolith. And yet very often when people want to castigate the black church, they speak about it monolithically. The black church is dead. The black church has failed, right? Instead of thinking about various streams. Uh, one, one way I define it is that the, the black church has its roots in Africa and has a shared history regarding American slavery and segregation. And so the institutional black church is a um, wonderful diversity of different Christian denominational congregational traditions around worship, doctrine, polity. Uh, and yet they have in the background this, this shared origin story, if you will, in terms of Africa, in terms of our enslavement from Africa, in terms of segregation, and this shared witness to, to be, in the words of one scholar, biblicist, to just look to scripture to give a defense of our humanity in the face of Jim Crow, in the face of white supremacy. Uh, and in that light, I do want to just highlight again that it, it is um, it is very diverse. So, you know, more recent scholars, particularly some womanist scholars, would argue there's no such thing as the black church, but there are black churches. And, um, and as such, I think we need to do a better job of interrogating the differences, say, between black Baptists, black Presbyterians, black Pentecostals, how regional differences, cultural differences, generational differences show up. And, and the last thing I'll say is that, you know, as you noted, there are various streams. Uh, Lincoln and Mamiya uh, in their book about the black church 
talk about these dialectical tensions that various black churches and black denominations and black church leaders have lived within these various tensions, right? So uh, not to go into all those dialectical uh, tensions per se, but you know, some churches majored more in, on charity, other churches majored more on justice work. Some churches majored more on spiritual formation, other churches majored on evangelism. And so uh, we have to be able to, to, to understand and lean into that diversity so that we can have a better understanding about when we say the black church, we're oftentimes narrowing our focus unwittingly on one particular tradition, i.e. our local church, our denomination, where we grew up. And it is it is important intellectually to move from the local to the global to have a better as uh, a better sort of assessment uh, of this very diverse diverse community. I'll say in closing, just so, so for people can kind of just take a nugget away, the Black Church is sociological and theological shorthand for a very diverse community of Black folks who believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the doctrinal differences. Are, are very stark in some cases as well. You know, I Absolutely. grew up in a more non-denominational black church before my father started his church. And the church we came from was a, a large church in Jacksonville that was uh, Kojic adjacent. The pastor came from <laughs> <laughs> a Kojic church. But, you know, I grew up hearing people say Baptist people weren't saved. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's this kind of theological thought that Pentecostal people had the Holy Spirit Baptist people didn't have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they needed to get filled with the Holy Spirit before they could get access to heaven. That's a big, uh, that's a big theological difference um, yeah. than the Baptist church downtown that was as large as the one I was a part of. But this, the difference was going to be stark belief, uh, belief wise, because, you know, they, that, that church, you know, just felt like Baptist people weren't authentic believers. And so, um, I think we don't even people don't even think about the nuances of of the how different people believed. And some people still believe that, honestly. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so um, I think it's important to highlight those doctrinal differences, which I don't know if the the, uh, film did a good job or even really touched on those doctrinal differences in a way that was robust. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem, though, and this is this is, you know, in the film, but but, you know, broadly in the guild of black church studies, uh, much of black church studies has been done using social scientific methods and often not looking at the black church in terms of the metaphysics, in terms of the belief structure, in terms of those things, they're looking more at sociological trends, at historical information, right? They're looking at politics. I think the film, uh, part of the the, the narrative uh, move in the film is to talk about the black church as a relevant political institution, right? And I think all that is in many ways important. You go back to people like Carter G. Woodson and W.E.B. Du Bois, who are kind of the first, some of the first folks who are doing kind of academic scholarly study on the black church, uh, but seldom do you find, in fact, one of the frustrations I've had, uh, let's say particularly in, in studies in black Baptist church, that almost all the writings are either historical or kind of a, a political read about, you know, the role the black Baptist church had in the civil rights movement, for instance, or whatnot. 
not taking enough time to, to really, as you say, drill down into uh, the doctrinal differences. Also related to that, I think one of the problems that some academic theologians and other scholars have is that they can at times be dismissive of the actual faith claims of those local people, right? It's, oh, well, they only believe that because it's compensation for something else, or they're trying to find some excuse or try to explain away, right, the theological and doctrinal pieces, because that's harder to, to nail down. But those of us who grew up in and are still in the Black church know, as you point out, that there are profound theological differences around hermeneutics, i.e. how we interpret scripture, around women in ordained ministry, around spiritual gifts, around music, what kind of music to play, um, what kind of instruments to use, um, order of salvation, ordo salutis, um, how is, you know, is one saved by simply confession of faith in Jesus Christ? Is one saved with confession plus baptism? Must that baptism be in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, or in the name of Jesus? Um, should should you pour water upon the the, the uh, baptismal candidate, or should that person be immersed? Should infants be baptized? Should they not? I mean, these are very profound uh, uh, debates, and I would argue, uh, Lisa, that those are in many ways, I understand the black church, you cannot deny those particular tensions because they are actually what give rise to how the black church then does charity, does justice, it engages in community development. Um, you know, what it, you know, quote unquote, what it does for the community is often rooted in theological, biblical, doctrinal, spiritual concerns. Uh, I think even uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Uh, Tracy Blackman in the film says something very powerful. She says, I'm not an activist, I'm a pastor, right? So her pastoral theology and her pastoral self-identity allows her to go out into the streets as someone extending pastoral care. Well, that's a very particular theological um, antecedent, right, to the activist work she's doing. And so a lot of times we fail to understand uh, those kinds of things. I remember, I'll say this last piece on that. Uh, I remember back in the late 80s and early 90s, much of radio preaching in the Deep South, in, in places like my home state of Mississippi, uh, that very often these preachments were diatribes against another denomination, <laughs> right? It was the preacher preaching about why the Baptists are going to hell why Kojic has the devil, right? I re Look, you know, I'm a preacher, so I am kind of long-winded. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think about one of the biggest debates that happened when I was, uh, I think, a freshman at, at Ole Miss. A Church of God in Christ uh, student and an apostolic student almost got into a fist fight over who truly had the Holy Ghost because of the difference in the baptismal formula for either respective group, Kojic baptizes in the Trinitarian name, Apostolics baptize in the Jesus name only kind of formula. And they almost got into a fist fight because they believed the doctrine that much. So any group of, of scholars that wants to evade um, those matters are missing, actually, I would say probably 70% of what has made various black denominations and local churches unique in the ways in which they live out. Uh, their faith, both in word and, and deed. But that doctrinal difference is key because if you, 
if you don't understand the doctrinal difference, you will romanticize or demonize yes. the, the black church. And so, you know, we, we see a lot of our black evangelical friends telling the white church, you know, we done with y'all. The black church is where it's at. And I'm just like, um, I do think, you know, the black church is, is where it's at. That's why I've been there my entire life. However, we cannot paint this false narrative as if the black church doesn't have its own set of issues, challenges, and we can't even romanticize how the black church was during the civil rights movement because stats say that it was maybe less than 10% of churches. Am I getting that right? That actually were, were participating yeah. in the civil rights movement. So it there wasn't, was a... this, it wasn't this, it's not, we can't create this narrative that wasn't there because then it's unhealthy for those who are trying to find their footing and where their ne next step should be. Yeah, I think one of the greatest problems in a particular nostalgic, romantic, uh, uh, backward gaze of the black church is dividing the black church's history into um, BK and AK, before King and after King. There are those who would say, you know, the black church was so relevant in the 1960s and, and you know, 50s and 60s. And um, and then after King was assassinated, the black church became irrelevant because it's no longer serving, it's no, no longer um, engaging in justice work. A few things to note. First of all, as you noted, Lisa, um, the black church then and now was very diverse and divergent around the subject of how to engage in political struggle, right? Not even just should we. I mean, there was there was a debate in some churches. Should we be involved in that? And there there were though, there were black Christians, black churches said, "This world is not our home. We're not worried about what happens in this life. We're on our way to heaven, right?" But there were also those who said, "We ought to engage in politics, but how should we?" One of the major debates, and this is something that was for whatever reason left out of of the documentary. King um, King's nonviolent direct action was protested against by the then president of the National Baptist Convention, of, of, of which King was a member. Uh, president Joseph H. Jackson did not believe in that direct action. He had numerous quarrels with that perspective, and it ultimately led that along with uh, uh, Jackson kind of being almost seen as a dictator in the convention, uh, led to the, the split that would become the Progressive National Baptist Convention to really kind of give the civil rights, you know, the SELC part of the civil rights movement, a, a, a denominational home. But even beyond that, only about 3% of black churches were actively on the front lines, marching, laying their bodies on the line uh, during the dramatization of redemptive suffering uh, that King and, and that particular element of the movement engaged in. Now, that didn't mean that other black churches that were not marching were not doing other things, right? They were housing freedom riders, they were feeding them, um, they, they were doing other things, but so many of them said, look, we cannot risk our jobs or our lives putting ourselves on the line in such ways. Um, because again, we have to think about the, the kinds of terrorism, church bombings and assassinations, all kinds of things were going on. And, and there were those even, let's be honest, toward the end of King's life, it wasn't just white people by and large who were disappointed with King or had issues with him. There were a lot of black folk who found King to be a troublemaker. 
So in some ways, we have to understand that King is was not as celebrated by the time of his death as he is now that he is sort of seen as an American hero. But that speaks to the diversity in the black church, the debates within the black church uh, about that. And then let's go over even further. People, um, you know, a lot of folks in, in SNCC, we think about uh, Mrs. Ella Baker, who critiqued King and that whole notion of a charismatic leader, the whole notion that you need King to show up to lead you. No, she was trying to empower everyday people. And you think about people like Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer here in Mississippi, undereducated, uh, inarticulate in many ways, laughed at by some of those uh, uh, yuppie or buppy uh, freedom riders who nevertheless put their bodies on the line in places like the Mississippi Delta, uh, who were not as refined as, and respectable as King was. So, you know, I think a great book to help people think through those sort of diversities would be a book by Barbara Diane Savage. I think it's titled uh, Your Spirits Walk Beside Us. And it gives a history of the tensions around gender, race, and politics within the Black church, uh, really from the institution of Black church, you know, really from the you know, 17, 1800s onward. So this notion, again, that there's a one-size-fits-all Black church denies the very history, the lived history of many, many Black churches and Black church leaders that often in various moments were fighting for the future of the church and its mission. People could be saying, you know, the Black church is dead, the Black church is dying. People are leaving the Black church. Well, which Black churches are they leaving? Why are they leaving those particular Black churches? It is almost a case-by-case -case basis because there is no monolith in the Black church space. So one could be leaving, you know, Pentecostalism because they feel like it's too emotional. One could be leaving Baptists because they feel like it's too legalistic. I mean, there could be a plethora of reasons and there's really no one size fits all. It is really hard to write about nuance. It is easy to generalize, gener gen make generalizations and then base arguments off of those things. Um, because I feel like the solution is very narrow and you can see in in the in the film some of the solutions for engaging the next generation or the problems or you know the black church hasn't done well with engaging people of different um sexual orientations that is true in some spaces that is not true in every church space and so it is i think our job to push back on the generalizations if we're going to make an impact because the history and the and our present is way more nuanced than, than we're actually engaging with. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's a very important note uh, for two reasons. One, um, scholars or people who aspire to be scholars, we often learn that nuance is is queen, right? That you've gotta nuance things. You, you know, very often if you look into history, you recognize that history is very convoluted, complicated. There are a number of reasons why things happen one way or another. And, and you were very spot on to point out the diversities of ways or reasons why uh, some black people may feel disenchanted with the black church. Um, yes, there are debates about um, sexuality in some church spaces and debates about the degree to which some black churches are involved on the front lines of you know movements like Black Lives Matter. But there are also other reasons, and I would dare say uh, my hunch, you know, hypothesis, I haven't studied this, right? So I'm just kind of offering my hypothesis that what you note as sort of these more kind of apologetical reasons, right? 
account for more reasons why a host of young black people are disenchanted with the black church. When I talk to them anecdotally, uh, as a pastor and as a professor at a HBCU, more often than not, what I'm getting are things like our black church was stuck in time. Like they're stuck back in the 1970s. They wouldn't move. They wouldn't grow. And so I moved to, a, you know, I went to another church or they experienced a lot of abuse in that church. The pastor was uh, uh, unaccountable. Uh, they, you know, there were silencings of, of sexual abuse or financial misconduct. Um, you, you hear about, you know, I remember, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you have, you know, uh, young black seminarians go to, you know, white conservative seminaries say, look, I grew up my whole life in the black church. It was nothing but emotionalism. I didn't learn any doctrine, any theology. And, and they turn, they turn away from the black church. There are a number of reasons why people engage. And I think what you do, Lisa, so well, is you begin with active listening before presuming to know what the solution ought to be. I can't, t you know, for instance, let's use the analogy of, of medical uh, doctors. The medical doctor doesn't give the prescription before knowing the diagnosis. And so very often we have people either in, in, in the academy, in the ivory or ebony tower, or people, you know, or, or you know, uh, social media hype people who are trying to find ways to blame the black church in, in, in toto who are trying to offer prescription, but they haven't done, they haven't done the, the, the remedial work to figure out what well, what's the diagnosis, what's going on here. And it's not always a one size fits all uh, scenario. I know of a lot of young black folks, for instance, who've, who've had questions, and here's a shameless plug, and when I direct them to videos for Jew 3 Project, they come back and say, wow, I'm growing in my faith now because these are questions that were taken seriously in these particular videos that I can now wrestle with in a different way as opposed to thinking I have to throw Jesus away, the church away. And so I would argue that part of the solution for some people when it is diagnosed properly is platforms like, like this, like the AND campaign, like the witness um, that, that are offering um, alternatives, right, to uh, contrarian voices that are offering, you know, in many ways, uh, placebos. And, and I think it's important to make sure, you know, one of the things I've been saying recently, again, another shameless plug, people have been reaching out to me about, you know, they want to do another documentary. But I said, you got to make sure you got a person like Lisa Fields in the conversation, because if you don't, you're missing a generous portion of the conversation. And that's my fear, that people will go away watching the Black Church uh, documentary, as great as it was, and have this sort of notion at the end, oh, the black church is dying because of where it stands on sexuality. Well, that may account for it here and there. But here's the other thing. That, but, but it also doesn't account, or that particular narrative doesn't account for why many white liberal churches are dying. So if it's just about sexuality, or just about being more liberal in one's politics, that doesn't account for the fact that there are a lot of liberal seminaries that are closing or about to close. So it can't just be this, again, this one-size-fits-all generalization. We've got to have a much more nuanced conversation that respects multiple voices, multiple perspectives, and offer various kinds of solutions as opposed to, again, a one-size-fits-all. I appreciate those shout-outs um, so very much. And also, I think you make a fantastic point that there are 
people want to wrestle with these doctrinal issues and they want answers and they don't want answers that lead nowhere. Um, oftentimes, some of the answers it, for my pr more progressive brothers and sisters is we're always on the flight. We never land the plane like we never land on a particular belief and we just always flying. We just always exploring ideas. And I'm all with that. But I, I've come to see uh, from in my own life and with uh, other people my age, they want to land on a particular belief. They don't want to just be out here, you know, in a perpetual state of uh, not uh, a perpetual state of uh, mystery uh, with no certainty. Uh, people want something they can bank on. Um, and, you know, to the sexual part, sexual ethics part, I think we have to look at the phenomenons of Mike Todd's and all the other young up and coming preachers that are really hardcore holiness in their preaching around sexual ethics. Um, and they have thriving churches. Um, and so they're basically unapologetic about their sexual stance. And it's very conservative in a lot of ways. And then you have churches that are saying we're completely open and affirming and they don't have, you know, hardly anybody there. So it can't be like, as to your point, it can't be just a, a progressive sexual ethic because we just haven't pragmatically, I haven't seen that necessarily be the driving force for people entering into a church. And I think even in some of the more progressive church spaces, you think about the belief system not being able to to kind of land the plane. We kind of open to every any and everything as it relates to belief. Um, the challenge, I think people feel like, well, what's the point of even coming? Like, you know, you're you're telling me there's no, you know, we're all saved in a, in a sense based on Jesus's death. Um, you're telling me, you know, there's no hell. And I think people start to think, well, what's the point of even coming? Um, I think some people, and I don't say that, you know, you need to use religion as a scare tactic to keep people in the pews, but I can see the logical conclusion for many people to say, if there is no, what would be the benefit for a pragmatic generation? What would be the benefit of me being present? Um, is, if I, if it, is it just for a social engagement? Because I could get that somewhere else. Um are you kind of tracking with where I'm going, CJ? Sure. So let me start with the um, sexuality piece uh, first. Uh, you know, I do think going again to nuance. I do think there are a lot of people who want nuanced conversations around the whole gambit of sexuality, right? Not just same gender loving people, but also, um, I mean, all all you know, the whole shebang: masturbation, you know, <laughs> menage a trois, uh, polyamory, right? There, those conversations are out there. Um, but there are younger people who are not just tracking with the more progressive libertarian, you know, uh, versions of, of that conversation, but also, as you know, kind of more holiness uh, uh, thoughts. There's a young lady uh, who uh, I knew here in, in Mississippi. I think she, she still may live here. She may be uh, moved on to Atlanta or some other place. But she was talking about how a recent sermon uh, by Apostle Brian Meadows uh, with his creativity, but also this sort of very, very kind of conservative, right, kind of ethic that my progressive friends were critiquing because it was, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Noir and all that. 
she was saying, thank you. You know, someone finally talked about something that spoke to sexual integrity in a way that as a young, you know, young black woman I could understand, embrace and try to live out. So now some way interpret her as being colonized. right? But but I think the reality is that that there's much more diversity around the sexuality conversation than kind of this hard conservatism or hard progressivism. There, there are a lot of people kind of in that middle who are trying to find nuance. Um, and, and, you know, and the fact that there are people who are, you know, following and tuning in to a Mike Todd, even if there is criticism of him, it just speaks to, well, he clearly has an audience with a population that believes this to be at least uh, earnest and, and true. Um, so that, that's number one. The other thing is, I think is again, important to note, I said this on on the witnesses uh, um, panel uh, that if you're wanting to fight for justice, don't do that for church growth sake. You want to fight for justice for the sake of fighting for justice, or because you believe mm-hmm. Jesus calls you to it, or the Bible commands you to it. Because fighting for justice does not necessitate a larger membership church. And there are those out there who've been making this argument: if the black church just engaged in justice more, more black youth would join it. Well, first of all, again, it's presuming that there are no black churches engaged in justice work, but it also presumes that just because you're engaged in justice work that you will actually see, you know, you know, 30 to 50 percent <laughs> uh, return on investment to, to the point about these kind of, um, uh, you know, vacuous, you know, we don't know. We're kind of still in limbo and mystery. And I, you know, I believe that should, there should be space for mystery. But I think you raise a great point in terms of one of the, you know, we've, ha- you know, we do a lot of emphasizing in some circles on uh, white supremacy, the white church, et cetera, and kind of the relationship between those things and the black church. But, you know, one of the things that we don't think about with regard to uh, the Temple of Moorish Science, Nation of Islam, Hebrew Israelites, et cetera, is that they land the plane, right? They may land the plane in ways that you and I disagree with, but they give very precise answers not just to blackness. I think that's another way in which, you know, not having more nuanced conversation misses things. It's not just about blackness in the case of NOI or uh, nationality and ethnicity in terms of Hebrew Israelites, but there's a particular narrative that ends in a place. There's a particular soteriology, right? There's a particular, this is what one must do to be saved, that, that they are um, answering whether it is, you know, we believe it to be right or wrong, it, it it points to almost what we call kind of at least a proposition or an absolute that they say you must embrace this in order to be whatever, fill in the blank, to be saved, to be woke, uh, to be liberated, et cetera. And if you if you look into, I'm more familiar with Nation of Islam than I'm the Hebrew Israelites, but there's some very interesting doctrines, right? It, when you join NOI, you're not just joining to be a better black man, black woman. You know, in this kind of sociological sense, you're joining because you believe in the mothership. You believe that Elijah Muhammad was um, the embodiment of Allah. Uh, you, there's some there's some very precise doctrinal decisions you make uh, to connect with. Uh, it, it rearranges your life. And I would argue that w- where we see more of, I don't like the language conservative progressive per se, but what we see in spaces like the Nation of Islam, Hebrew Israelites, this strict, this sort of disciplined uh, approach to both doctrine and duty it is attractive to a number of people who actually are longing for that, but they don't necessarily know that they're, that's what they're longing for. 
I see that even in black church spaces. Some of the growing churches are also kind of more, you know, stern on how to live right. One of my best friends uh, is an apostolic preacher who came from the streets of New Orleans. And he, he clean, you know, he, he has this sort of, I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to preach about Jesus. I want you to accept Jesus. I want you to get baptized. I want you to be saved. I also want you to have a job. I want you to be entrepreneurial. I want you to get your credit right. And just about every young man and young woman that's a member of his church is a night and day. I mean, they you, you look at where they are today in terms of their careers and, and the way they dress and all this stuff and compare that to who they were before they got there. It's, it's a total change. Now, part of the reason why that's successful for so many of them is because of the strictness of it, right? The, the you know, holding to the holiness ethic, holding to being a man, being a woman, right? These traditional gender norms. I'm not saying that that's the only way, but at least we have to acknowledge the fact that there are a lot of folk who are looking for that. And if they can't find it in the church, they go to the nation of Islam. They go to Hebrew Israelite uh, uh, communities or camps to find that. And so I do think those who are much more progressive need to be at least some critical, even if they still land the plane in different ways, that that alone is not going to get it. Now, just being conservative fundamentalist ain't going to get it either, right? Because a lot of folks are going to leave this little fundamentalist camp that's just saying, believe it because I said so. Um, but again, I don't think there's a one size fits all and we have to do it better. And I think the great gift of this generation is that we, we have uh, with platforms like the Jew3 Project, opportunities to talk more about that nuance, talk more about those other ways of being Black church, being Black Christian, that have been undervalued, underprivileged for so long in the academy and in the streets. Uh, and I think we articulate that in a better and, and, and broader way. We'll see more and more people recognize uh, that is a lot more, it's more like Baskin Robbins 31 flavors than it is just Neapolitan. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to note because, you know, one thing I thought was so interesting about Courageous Conversations, we've had one conversation focused on justice and the conversation on justice was the least watched conversation. Everybody else wanted to, to digest the doctrinal stuff. Uh, and I've, I have young people telling me all the time, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the authority of scripture conversation. I really enjoyed that. It was so funny. My friend uh, works um, in DC. She She's worked for the DNC. She's worked, uh, done advocacy work. Uh, worked on the Hill, um, done all this. And she said when her pastor did a justice series, she actually, that's the Sunday she didn't go. Um, because she said she was, um, her job was justice work and she needed a space where her soul could be edified. And she was like, I can't deal with that Monday through through Friday and come to church on Sunday and navigate that. I thought that was so interesting, but it shows where people are. And I mean, she goes hard for, I mean, she's doing the work. Um, she's gotten bills passed, all of that stuff. And it's kind of like people want that balance. And I think, you know, people could get stuck in just the justice stuff and don't realize that people want other elements um, in their walk with the Lord. Yeah, I think so important. I think it's so important to preach the whole counsel of God and, and, and as pastors, particularly to be both priestly and prophetic. And so one of the things I've often talked about is you won't be pigeonholed if you engage in the full orbed approach to gospel ministry. 
So yes, the church is supposed to, you know, help, you know, save souls, to disciple folks. It's also engaged in community efforts to, to, to provide charity, to, to advocate for justice, to develop community. Uh, and churches, I think, that, that tend to walk that nuance well, not saying they necessarily grow numerically, but at least they're healthy, right? That, that people in the pews begin to say, look, I'm healthy. So you know, anecdotally, um, I've covered a wide array of these things. I, we've had Bible studies and Sunday sermons and whatnot um, about justice, uh, about, you know, about relationships and marriage. Um, we've had, you know, various conversations about, um, you know, white supremacy. We've had conversations about doctrine. Uh, and one of the things I've recognized, two things. One, you got some people who jump in and jump out depending on the subject. You know, for some people, I don't want to hear the justice stuff. Okay, I don't hear all that doctrine stuff. I just, you know, just teach me how to be a better husband. Right? Um, but my thing is, the you know, the whole counsel of God touches on almost all, really all of those, all of those matters. Um, but, but to drill down a little deeper, I, I absolutely believe that the doctrinal pieces are, are very essential and important. And there are a lot of people talk about, oh, doctrine divides, we don't want doctrine. But I think it's because we've seen, you know, the abuses of doctrinal debates, but at the end of the day, doctrine just means teaching, right? And so people want to know, at, you know, tying to your uh, pragmatism uh, point, they want to know that they know the right stuff, right? So they want, if the Bible is authoritative, they want to know why and how. Um, because if it's not, then I don't need to be, I don't need, why, why am I reading this? I mean, that's, you know, you, you had me on some time ago about my own, you know, faith journey from agnosticism. And for me, as a young, as a millennial, I'm almost 40, I'm 39, but I was, you know, I was, you know, in my preteens, but I started asking these deeper questions. Now, interestingly, my dad was and is a civil rights attorney, right? He was suing governors and boards of supervisors. And so I was, I was in a justice world. I was in a black community that understood the right to vote, the need to vote, all those kinds of things. But my queries, my concerns were not about the church ought to be doing more on the front lines for justice. I wanted to know if this was true. How is this Bible any different from the Quran, from the uh, uh, Egyptian and Greek mythology? I was, I mean, what, if this is true, right? And, and not only was I asking if this is true, I was also saying, you know, if it were true, why do I not see this stuff happening today? There's no way for me to verify this truth. You, you know, uh, the pastor saying, I believe because God said, well, how do I know God said it if he ain't saying it to me? I'm reading a book that's ancient, right? In my heart, I wanted to believe, but I didn't have resources around me that could help me navigate that. So, you know, and I'm, in, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people who, you know, in my early teens was not really into church, really had no vision for my life in church, was going to be an international attorney and uh, have girlfriends in every area code. And <laughs> <laughs> um, but as, as the old folks said, something got a hold to me, you know, the Lord really arrested me and drew me near in, in uh, my late teens. And ever since then, an accent of my ministry has been, I want to help persuade people who have doubts. 
the way that I ultimately came from doubt to faith. And that is not fundamentally a conversation about, you know, well, we just don't know, right? No, I wanted to know. Like, I wanted some, because what's the, I mean, what was the point? If I didn't know, what's the point of getting up early on Sunday morning and wasting all that time? You know, mm -hmm. back in the day, we were in church for three hours, right? <laughs> <laughs> waste all that time on Sunday morning, three hours in church, but I don't really know. It's a mystery. No, I, I, I mean, good. Thank God for mystery, but y'all need to be telling me some truth. Because if not, I know some better things to do with my time. I can I can be brunching <laughs> like some of the younger folks are doing now. So, yeah, and I think that's so important to note, like that that people want to know, people want to have answers. Like you say, you won't get every answer. There's a certain level of mystery we see through the glass dimly, but as Kimmy said, we don't. That doesn't mean we can't see it all. Um, so there's some level where we say uh, there's some answers that we can give to the questions of the day. And there are some nuances that we could give on the sexuality, uh, sexuality conversation. Every black church member, every black church has not done poorly in navigating the sexual conversation. Um, some have done very well and could be a model for others. Some have um, but I think it's unfair when we demonize and paint this picture. Now, there's a lot and probably more that have done poorly than have done well. But that's I think that's just across. That's not even just in the church. I think that's just across American culture in general. There's some atheists that probably don't do well with that. So I don't think we should limit it to the black church. Um, the black church definitely has to have a conversation around sexual ethics um, within leadership number one, and then with the ways in which we misuse uh, people's gifts and condemn them at the same time um, and demonize them at the same time. And I think we haven't done a good job in doing a self-assessment. If I'm going to preach a thing um, and I'm, I got to live the same thing. Um, and I think people want that consistency. If anything, people are are frustrated with the inconsistency of the sexual ethics within black churches. Uh, and I think we have to, you know, I think both of us have been very honest that that is a, a struggle for many black churches across denominational spectrums. Um, and that's a church. I don't even want to limit it to black church. That is a church. That's a church. That's a church problem across white evangelicalism, across white Presbyterianism. I mean, you know, just it's, across church space in general. Um, so, yeah. Is there anything you want to say to that? So I think you're right. And, and I think, I think we can do, we can affirm and negate, right? We can affirm that there have been churches that have tried to work through these things with, with nuance, with clarity, with compassion. Um, you know, I see young up and coming apologists who are trying to do that same thing of, of, of speaking with dignity, uh, uh, for instance, the LGBTQ, same gender loving persons um, to rebuke uh, fellow clergy who use um, abusive language from the pulpit, uh, you know, to, to be honest about the fact that, you know, um, you know, we got folk who preach a lot against homosexuality while they're still, you know, as we call it, hoeing around. OK, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's the proper theological term that I should be using on Jesus. I mean, it's the, the truth. You know, you know, or, you know, here's another here's another thing that, I, you know, I hope I don't get in trouble here. But one of the most disheartening things and I think I ought to maybe back up a little bit and say that 
from from uh, you know eighteen up, I uh, basically was trained largely in more progressive thought. Right, even at Ole Miss, people like Ole Miss. Hey, most of my professors were much more liberal, left of center, progressive. And there was a way in which I went through this whole kind of the progressives are wonderful, the conservatives are bad. <laughs> and that's our seeing the bad things that progressives do. One of the worst experiences I had, I was a uh, seminarian at Duke. And I went, I won't name the name of the conference, but I went on this conference, very progressive black church conference. And folks had just gotten through preaching about how bad George W. Bush was. He was a bad president, you know, the whole this is around Katrina time, post-Katrina. And those same, some of those same preachers afterward, many of them married men, were soliciting, sexually soliciting some of the women uh, who were also seminarians. And it it hit me in such a big way because I, it, I and what came to mind, I had to preach uh, um, uh, in my homiletics class when I got back to Duke. And what inspired that sermon was that's that, that reality and then Isaiah 6. Not just the call, but he, his saying, woe am I for I am among an unclean people, but I am also unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the, and the, the seraphim, you know, touch and purge his, his own mouth. And it's after that he can preach prophetically. And I started thinking about the fact that so often our prophetic gaze is always exterior to us. In our communities, it's always them. It's those folks. And it's like, but wait a minute. I don't, I don't see this being cons a consistent sexual ethic and you know, you on one hand you're affirming this, but on the other hand, you're 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 you know basically being a predator. <laughs> and so I think you know, so it's easy for us to beat up on like the you know conservative position around sexuality, but we also see these problematic patterns and practices in in progressive space. And I think it's because we have not um, we've not dealt with it enough in a very nuanced way. But we also have, and this goes back to doctrine. I was saying this about a more recent scenario that has blown up. I won't go into more detail. But I said the problem with so many of us is that we've majored in justification by faith and minored in sanctification. That may sound like a hole in this comment. But the problem is not the doctrine. The problem is we haven't preached all of it. We, we, we say, well, we're justified. I can So I believe on Jesus. I can do whatever I want to do. Or everyone's going to heaven or whatever it may be. This hyper grace message. The problem is, I think we have lost a sense that God calls us to live holy. Now, that does not mean that Lisa needs to wear a long skirt, no makeup. I wear long sleeves in the summer. But it does mean that we begin to take seriously that there is a such thing as sin. There is a such thing as grace, and there is such a thing as a spirit who empowers us to be conformed daily to the image of Jesus Christ. And until we help people understand that there's power over sin through Jesus, by the power of his spirit, then I think we miss an opportunity uh, to help people uh, really grow and mature. Paul says in Ephesians, the, his prayer is essentially that all of us could grow up to be mature 
in, in, in the body. And I think the more we begin to have these kinds of tough conversations, the more we will mature, the more we will grow up and to be all that God has called us to be in Christ. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the things that is challenging for so many is that, like you said, uh, I, I said on my conversation with show, we focus on, you know, one through five, woe unto them and never get to woe unto me. And, you know, I see a lot of um, young, young preachers being justice oriented and calling out the hypocrisy of conservative conservative theology. And I'm with calling out the hypocrisy. I'm with calling out the gaps. But just because someone didn't live up to the standard doesn't mean God still doesn't have that standard. And so I could say, you know, well, so-and-so preached that you didn't sleep around, but we found out later they were sleeping around. God still calls us not to sleep around. That doesn't mean you get to sleep around. <laughs> um, and I think people use hypocrisy as a means to do what they want to do. As if God changed his mind because your hero wasn't able to keep up the standard. No, God doesn't change his mind. And God always has someone who's living it. Uh, it may not be the person that you thought was the greatest, but God has, God always has somebody else. Um, and so uh, our heroes aren't God's heroes. And so he's not, he's not thrown off uh, when our heroes uh are revealed to be human. And so I think it's important for us as young people, as believers in Christ to not, to not adapt this, um, this thought that because people couldn't do it, that I can't do it. God wouldn't give us commands if he didn't give us the power to, to walk those out. And we live in a space where, you know, we we lean on if I happen to sin, we have an advocate with the father. But God also has he makes a way of escape. And I hope we just begin taking those ways of escape uh, and 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 obey um, what God calls us to do. Absolutely. No, I mean, amen to that. And um, I would also kind of say, you know, kind of from a slightly intellectual place. The end game, the goal may not be the problem. We may have misunderstood how we get there. Mm -hmm. So holiness may not be the problem. Is that we put legalism upon holiness and said, well, if you dress this way, then you'll be holy. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not that God doesn't still say be holy, right? And I and I have also, you know, you know, and and you know, and people know if they don't know, I, I'm hard on white supremacy and injustice and I'm even hard on sexism. I'm, I'm you know, uh, advocate for women in, in various leadership roles, all that. Um, so I'm, I say that to say that um, I guess one of the grave concerns I have is that there's almost a certain kind of um, acceptable self-righteousness and, and, and and sort of elitism, right? That if I preach against white supremacy, I can do whatever I want to do with my body or anyone else's body. Um, that I could uh, be abusive and manipulative and cutthroat and petty and treat people wrong and cuss them out, and dog them out um, because I'm doing God's work because I'm preaching liberation. Um, and I think I think when you start breaking down the impact of that 
and the ways in which we cut out different things. Look, here, here's something I would say, particularly because I was an unbeliever at one point. I'd rather you just say I don't believe in Jesus than to, to take all the stuff that Jesus... In fact, I just had a conversation with somebody. He was like, you know, if we just got to what Jesus said about love God and love neighbor, we'll be fine. All that stuff is noise. I said, yeah, except that other thing Jesus said about unless you eat my blood, uh, eat my body, drink my blood, you have no life in you. I mean, Jesus said a lot of stuff that were controversial. I mean, and they left him that day. Most people say, wait a minute, I don't understand this. We out. <laughs> you know, like the little meme where the guy said, I hate this church. Like, wait, you know, <laughs> you, were, you were good when you were feeding us bread and, 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 and uh, fish, but no, dog, I'm out. I hate this church. Um, that, that, you know, we want to explain away the resurrection because, you know, it doesn't fit modern scientific or postmodern scientific sensibilities. But my thing is either, and I'm going to sound very conservative here, either Jesus is who he is presented as in the gospels, in Acts, in the epistles, in Revelation, or he ain't. And if he ain't, we might want to pack up all this stuff and go home. Paul said if the resurrection wasn't real, then come on, what's up? So I think when even when it comes to sexual ethic or financial ethic or any kind of ethic, um, I think it should be, you know, maybe this is true and maybe we ought to aspire to it knowing that we're frail, knowing that we're in the flesh, but that God calls us to live victoriously. One of my great heroes, you see my book here, Deeper Steel, I talk about Charles Price Jones. And one of the things he said when he got to Jackson, Mississippi, he said he, he had a powerful experience in Selma before coming to pastor uh, Mount Helm Baptist Church. He said, I saw my people in such disrepair, morally bankrupt, intellectually benighted, that I could have come and preached to them these wonderful intellectual sermons and feel-good sermons. I wanted them to live victoriously. I wanted them to know that there's something better than just settling for, I go to church and that's about it. And he believed that through the Holy Spirit, you have access to power to live a victorious life. And for me, at least, it's not to say that there's sinless perfection per se, that's a doctrinal debate in some churches, but there should be the sense that you know, day by day, uh, as one songwriter says, I may not be where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. And I think that that understanding would help us deal with white supremacy and <laughs> sexual misconduct and uh, bad attitudes that don't bear witness to fruit of the spirit. And, and I think if we hold that together, we'll see where the black church has got it right, where it's gotten it wrong and where it's gotten it wrong. We become reformers to help the church where it's gotten right. We hold that as a model for what other churches can become. Mm -hmm. That's And that's so, so crucial what you said there. Uh, one day we'll have to talk at length about And I love this conversation for those who are listening. You know, both me and, and Dr. Rose are proponents of justice. But we know that the audience that is that is watching is already sold on that. We don't need to convince black people that <laughs> white supremacy exists and justice uh, needs to roll down like rivers. We don't need to convince black people of that. It is other things that affect our community and our churches that we need to speak to. And I think sometimes people get pigeonholed in only talking about justice is because they're in a white space where they have to convince the white people, you know, that this is important. 
But when you're over in the black church space, it's like people know it's important. What are the other issues? That's why, you, like you said, we have to preach the whole counsel of God. Um, and that's that's important. Um, I thank you for your time. I think we we covered a lot of ground here. We could be here for hours uh, talking about this film and just our own experience in the black church and how we want to see it reformed. What are um, what are some other what would be your final words to our audience uh, before you head out and also tell us how we could get your book deeper seal? Sure. Um, so thank you again, Lisa, for the opportunity. I always enjoy our conversations. They seem to run by so fast. Uh, I would I would say kind of as we began that the black church is is complicated, is beautiful, is diverse. Uh, we're not a monolith, but we are majestic and that we ought to try our best to learn all we can about the the rich diversity of the black church. And I think for people who want to know more about it, I think the Jew three project is a great place uh, to start, go through the various videos, uh, through the eyes of color and other resources. Um, one of the reasons I love the black church is because of, of, of what it has done in my own life and shaping me and forming my, my family, uh, but also wonderful stories like the one of, of Charles Price Jones that I try to tell in, in miniature in deeper steel and ultimately about how the Holy Spirit can empower ordinary people, ordinary black people who follow Jesus uh, to be change agents, both in the church and in the culture. And the book is titled Deeper Steel Ministry Empowered by the Holy Spirit. You can go and find it on Amazon.com. Just type in a search Deeper Steel, CJ Rhodes. Or if you want an autographed signed copy, you can go to cjrhodes.org and find it there, order it, and I will be glad to, to mail you an autographed copy. Appreciate the support um, from those who, who will buy the book. I think you'll be blessed and inspired by the story I try to tell there. Um, it's a story that is important uh, to be told because uh, I'm just gonna be a little bit of a hater here, when told in, in, in the uh, Black Church documentary. So uh, watch the documentary and then go buy the book and read that portion of, of, of the Black Church's history. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. How can people get in contact with you on social media? They can find me on Facebook, CJ Rhodes, D-Men, D-M-I-N. They can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at RevRhodes82. And um, however, you know, you reach out to me, we'd love to connect with you. Uh, send a friend request or follow me or inbox me or uh, um, respectfully and in a holy way slide into my DMs. <laughs> <laughs> I love that respectful and holy sliding into DMs. That means he's not soliciting uh, relationships. He's soliciting, well, business relationships, not, nothing else. That's what he means by that. <laughs> uh, make sure you, uh, well, thank you for, for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As CJ mentioned, we have our curriculum through the eyes of color. If you haven't got that, you definitely want to get it today. It will help you dispute the claim that Christianity is a white man's religion, strengthen your faith, and give you the tools you need to study God's word on a deeper level. Um, you could take our online course um, at Jew3Project.org. Uh, you could get the book on Amazon and on our website. You could become a monthly partner at Jew3Project.org. Uh, we thank you for listening and we're so thankful for you. And as we always say here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you know what you believe and why you believe it. Until next time, grace and peace and God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.